from Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Hey, hey, out there in Radio Land, it is I in a split screen edition of. Wow, that was a quick bump down. Thanks, Rob. Uh, we've got a split screen edition of the best political podcast you've never downloaded, Backroom Politics. I am your host and moderator, Justin Russell, from Maduro Cigar Lounge, 2800 Marina Bay Drive in League City, Texas. And joining us as they do every time we record this, we have in Studio A there at Podcast Village, we have the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade, the one we know as the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And also in Studio A to his left, he is the longtime Democratic Joe Biden political operative. He is Dan Lipner. Hello, Dan. I am Iron Man. You are Iron Man. <laughs> At least that's what you tell yourself. And joining us from an undisclosed location somewhere in the Bay State of Massachusetts, he is the author of such great books as American Politics on the Rocks. He's the one we know as Rich Rubino. Hello, Justin. Oh, hello, Rich. How are you? And also in the Glass and Closed Nerve Center of Backroom Politics, keeping us honest, he is Rob the Engineer. Hey, Rob. Hey, hey, Justin. Hey, and uh, we also want to say hello to Charlie and Oscar, the proprietors of Podcast Village, who give us a home every week. So thank you to you guys. We've got a lot to talk about. Obviously, as we record this podcast, we are deep in the throes of an impeachment going on, impeachment trial going on in the Senate. And if you want our commentary on that, you can download the previous edition of Backroom Politics. But we're going to go back to, you know, we're going to go back to our hardcore roots and talk about presidential politics. And we're going to talk a little bit about the Democratic presidential race, which continues to be very interesting, very dynamic and very fluid. Uh, last week, we saw at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, a, pres- a Democratic presidential nominee debate which highlighted six on stage, which surprisingly also included Tom Steyer, which was interesting. Uh, a lot of stories coming out of that, but let's go to the big kind of catch story that happened from Dan was right about the takeaway about Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. Will you let me moderate? Oh, yeah. Dan, let me moderate. I'm bringing that up. The big takeaway there was the interesting hot mic catch by CNN in a discussion after the debate between uh, New, uh, Vermont Independent Senator and, and perennial presidential candidate Bernie Sanders and the, and the senator from the great Commonwealth of Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, the, the hot mic capture was uh, Elizabeth Warren walking up to Bernie Sanders and basically accusing Bernie Sanders of, and I quote, did you just call me a liar on national TV? I think you just called me a liar on national TV. And Bernie Sanders uh, kind of said, look, now's, I'm paraphrasing now. Now's not the time. But uh, they, it was an awkward interaction. And then it was even made more awkward by the insertion of Tom Steyer. Well, before, but before Steyer got there, then Bernie also said, actually, you called me a liar. 
And then, but let's not talk about it. And then Steyer stepped in and thought, "Uh "Oh, what am I doing here?" So let's let's say hi. (laughs) Let's talk about this though for a second because that sparked a lot of political buzz going on inside Washington and inside the Democratic Party. And as Democratic Party, I'll start with you, Dan Lipner. Was was this a lot of nothing, or is there something to? this interaction that we need to keep an eye on is there an ill dynamic between those two okay well i will repeat my point that i predicted this last week and i'm sad to say i was correct (laughs) i believe i predicted it first my friends Oh, good Lord, we're oh, not yes. going to get into a measuring oh, contest. Yes. Really? No. You are you calling him a liar? My amen yeah. chorus. Yeah, are you, are you, Alan, are you, call, are you calling Dan a liar on national podcasts? <laughs> no, 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 no. He was. He definitely echoed my already made comments. Okay, It, so it anyway, depends Dan, what your definition of remembering is. Indeed. Indeed. back to the podcast, we're please? We're going to go back and look. Dan Lipner, is there something to this? Is this a dynamic that that we need to keep an eye on? It, my, I believe my exact line that I posted online was, "This is why we lose." Um, <laughs> it, 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 the my, uh, the statement last week was, uh, "The nothing good comes from from outing a private conversation like that between two people." Uh, worse than that. Having that kind of awkward position on stage where nobody looks good, but Elizabeth Warren, I thought, looked particularly bad. And the the refusing to shake uh, Bernie Sanders' hand in the process just looks petty. And, yeah, I know I saw some editorial comments saying, this is what you do for women when you have those kind of issues, which is just not true and everything that played out from there is going to be inside democratic baseball and since the bernie bros are their own special kind of problem i have a sneaking suspicion that 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 pesky little problem is not going to go away anytime soon so at the end of the, I believe we're 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 post debates for at least the, until Iowa's over. Um, the we're just going to see headaches showing up, and worse yet, now anything that has a whiff of gender politics involved is going to reignite things in a bad sort of way. When you have Donald Trump in the White House, who is not exactly uh, an aid toward women's issues at all. Uh, but that's important for us to fight on democratic politics because that's what we do and that's why we lose. Right. Rich Rubino, did that interaction going off of Dan's point, did that hurt the Democrats in general or did it just hurt any sort of leadership position uh, in the polling, in the standings that either Bernie or Warren might have going into Iowa. Oh, well, I think that it probably more so than anyone else, it probably hurt Elizabeth Warren because I think she was seen as petty. You know, she was essentially sitting there after that response for an hour. People have the idea that she just had this pent up emotion. And, you know, most candidates are very scripted and it's very, you know, to the extent that, you know, I think Elizabeth Warren is seen as one candidate who is very scripted with the fact that she actually went over there and did a very unscripted thing. 
by going over there and essentially, con- essentially confronting him about that. Now people are wondering, you know, what exactly had gone on there. But what you're really going to see now, as I think you're, and you've already seen it a little bit, is there has to, at some point, the kind of non-aggression pack that the two had is over. And it had to have been because they're essentially going for a lot of the same core constituency, kind of the progressive left of the Democratic Party. And at some point, they would have had to have actually gone after it, gone after each other. But what I actually thought was the most interesting part of the whole exchange was that Bernie Sanders, because the whole basically the issue is that Bernie Sanders, according to Elizabeth Warren, allegedly they had a discussion in 2017, and Bernie Sanders said that the party, the country's not ready to elect a woman president. And Sanders said, well, when you were considered, said that when there was a sense what happened was there was a draft movement to get Elizabeth Warren to run as a progressive alternative to Hillary Clinton in 2016. And Bernie Sanders eventually decided he was going to run himself as a left-wing alternative. But he essentially said that Elizabeth Warren, when she was considering running, that he was going to stand down for Elizabeth Warren and allow Elizabeth Warren to run. And, pro- and my guess is she probably, he probably theoretically would have endorsed her. So the question is, whether, so that's, I mean, really, it's, it's an endorsement of Elizabeth Warren at that time. What is it that you see in Elizabeth Warren? The one that I would ask about is Elizabeth Warren. I would say, why did you like me so much you were essentially willing to stand down? But, you know, it actually reminds me of 1968, just very quickly. You know, everyone, the Democrats left wanted Robert Kennedy to run, and eventually he wouldn't run. So Eugene McCarthy comes in and fills the void as an anti-Vietnam War candidate. So he gets in the race, and he, get, he gets in the race. And then after, after he almost defeats Lyndon Johnson in New Hampshire, Robert Kennedy then gets back into the race. And he says, well, I'm going to run after all. And a lot of the people who, were, who, had, who had went in the draft movement said, no, we're with McCarthy after all, you know, because he stood by us. I think it's very similar what's going on with some of the Bernie Sanders people. It's just a very similar um, dynamic, and there's just this bloodline in the left wing of the Democratic Party. And But Bernie Sanders' problem is not only Elizabeth Warren, his problem is also Tulsi Gabbard, his problem is also Andrew Yang, other candidates that potentially, if they were not in this race, I think their support, the preponderance of it, would probably go to Bernie Sanders as well. But you know what? Anything that was said, bottom line is this, anything that was said in that Democratic debate, no one's going to remember. The only thing anyone's going to remember for that debate is going to be the Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders uh, standoff at the end. Yeah, the yeah, biggest but, but, winners are the people uh, who were not involved in the standoff. Right. But, 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 yeah, let me, let me, let me on, throw in on. a thought. Um, hold on. I think, Alan Moore. I think that they both were hurt by this. Um, Bernie certainly didn't win any great thing. Um, and most, many people believe her, whatever they think of her are inclined to believe her on the facts. Uh, the there's another another thing that's emerging just around us now and next week um, out at Sundance, and it's a multi-part movie about Hillary Clinton that mm-hmm. that was made from hundreds of hours of watching her campaign, and then a lot of time, some thirty-five or so hours over in recent months, um, and. And she is now out with uh, not only that movie, but some interviews in which she absolutely trashes Bernie Sanders as a guy who no one trusts, no one wants to work with, and who's done very little in his time in the Senate. And it's clear that she continues to deeply resent his criticisms of her, which are all going to be part of this conversation now, of uh, that that are not helpful to 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 him. I'm not saying it helps uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren because because Hillary Clinton's got her own problems, but it's but Alan, it's a narrative Alan, that makes you. Alan, let me just ask you this question real yeah. quick. Hold on, let me just ask this question: is, is does does the ghost of Hillary Clinton 
still have that much influence, not just on Bernie Sanders supporters, but on the Democratic Party as a whole. Well, it's it's hard to know how much influence it is. And if it just popped up in the absence of this he said, she said argument on an important question that could have been bypassed by either one of them, uh, but they didn't. it it feeds into that narrative, in my judgment, and and is and and in is particularly uh, you know it may have some negative impact on, on Bernie. Is it a deal breaker for Bernie? No. But if you're trying to figure out who's telling the truth, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, why are they having this argument? But who's telling the truth? Her in, in her interjection here is damning because it it tends to suggest that this is not inconsistent with the right. kind of thing that Bernie has been doing for right. years. And, oh, by the way, he hasn't done much as a senator, right. as, a, as a non-Democrat. Although, right. let me, there might be a, I'm sorry, there may be a counterstroke that the Bernie people could say here. They can say, essentially, the establishment beat us last time. They did it unfairly with Hillary Clinton. Now the establishment's all getting together and they're all supporting Elizabeth Warren, and this could potentially bring out a lot of millennials, a lot of people who are really, there's a lot of enmity effectuated toward the establishment of the Democratic Party. If Bernie Sanders plays this right, he can actually use this to his advantage, I think. Dan Lipner? So let, 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 let me risk uh, pissing some people off by saying the, the macro issue of whether or not a woman can win as president is obviously important. The micro uh, question of whether or not this statement was said in private between two of 100 senators is not important at all. Who the hell cares what Bernie Sanders thinks of whether or not a woman can be elected president or not, other than people who might not might vote or not vote for Bernie Sanders? It is not an important thing, and this is why, again, Democrats lose, getting lost in that internal debate. Bernie Sanders had the correct response when he said it's inconceivable that I could could have said that, especially since Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by close to three million votes. That was the correct point, And it should have ended there. Wrong. Wrong. What he should have said is. I have never believed that. I can't believe that I would have said something that would have caused you to think I said that. I certainly never believed it. And if I somehow gave you that impression, let's clarify that. And I am so sorry that you got that impression because I have never believed it. That's what he needed to say. Alan's point is better. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, but Dan Littner, it, it, it seems to me that the last thing either of them need with the uptick of Amy Klobuchar, with the stability of Joe Biden and the perennial power that Bernie Sanders still has in a chunk of the Democratic Party, this doesn't help anybody, even a Joe Biden and Amy Klobuchar or a Pete Buttigieg. Am I wrong? No. If I had to bet, I would say uh, Klobuchar and Biden are are the biggest winners. Uh, Klobuchar for being a woman not involved with that kind of petty fight on stage 
and giving some giving folks who would like to vote for somebody who is qualified and a woman a, an alternative to Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden for being the stable person not remotely involved with the gaffe on stage between the two of them who had the good sense to just not be present for whatever that was between the two of them. Um, and on top of that, since Uncle Joe, who has been gaff-prone in the past, is seeming like consistently seeming like the decent person on stage who can be magnanimous among everyone. Um, that's the the takeaway from all of the b- debates has been that position that he seems to be holding fairly well to himself. Um, and unfortunately, Elizabeth Warren is consistently involved with those kind of petty squabbles. I mean, the previous debate was between her and Pete Buttigieg about a wine cave of all things, and she ended up being the net loser on that one as well because Pete Buttigieg got a chance to shine the light on people's personal wealth, including her own. (laughs) So so Elizabeth Warren is fighting bad fights that that are petty that are not winning votes. Right, but Dan, doesn't this pose a problem for... Mind you, I used to be a fan of hers. (laughs) I know. But Dan, doesn't this pose a problem to Democrats as a whole as far as trying to garner some possible independent support, trying to get them to say, wait a minute, the Democrats are in fact not this petty group of possible bicoastal elitists that are going through the same thing over and over again and that's why i voted for trump in the first place if neither warren or sanders are on the ticket it's going to be forgotten in two weeks yeah okay makes sense hey uh rich rubino yes when 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 we look at uh some of the takeaways from that debate it struck me as odd not the fact that they spend so much time talking about global trade, but they did it in an area that is particularly impacted by the president's tariffs. Did did the Democratic Party, did the candidates or the party as a whole score any points with Iowa voters to get them to see we're the ones really protecting you, not Donald Trump? No, I don't think so, because essentially the argument and part of what Bernie Sanders' attack line in Joe Biden, he has, it's kind of a three-pronged approach. It's about the Iraq war. It's about his support for bank. It's about his um, opposition to bankruptcy reform. And it's about his position essentially on, uh, well, also his support for the credit card companies and his support for global trade deals like NAFTA. I mean, Iowa is a little bit different because Iowa is a state where the entire congressional delegation essentially supported NAFTA, for example, very pro-free trade state as opposed to some of the more Rust Belt states like Ohio. But, I mean, I don't know if that's really going to be the flagship issue among Democrats. Maybe in the general election it's going to be a major issue. But among Democrats, I don't think it's going to be that big of – I don't think trade is going to be that big of an issue, which, other than the fact that Bernie Sanders is going to be able to use it as one way to get to, as to, way to, get to Bernie – to get to Joe Biden's left. And the other argument that, that Bernie Sanders potentially – it's not, not necessarily a state like Iowa or Washington State that are dependent on trade, but in places like Ohio and Michigan and Wisconsin – he can make if when people say is Bernie Sanders electable, and this is the same argument Elizabeth Warren essentially can make, they can say that well, part of the reason we lost last time is we had Hillary Clinton who could not get to the left of Donald Trump on NAFTA because her husband had signed it and she had been a proponent of it at the time. 
Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren can come back and say, well, we were opposed to NAFTA, we're opposed to all those trade agreements, and in a sense kind of neutralize Donald Trump on trade, whereas Donald Trump, in the case of if Joe Biden were the nominee, he could come back and he could say, you know, Joe Biden was a, somebody, who support, somebody who supported NAFTA. Joe Biden essentially, Joe, Joe, Biden is a, Joe Biden is a free trainer. He's a reason all these jobs have gone overseas and that type of a thing. But generally speaking, I don't see it as being a major, um, a major, a major play in the Democratic primary. Yeah, but Alan Moore, regarding that same point, though, we look at uh, Senator Warren, who, I mean, who obviously was never a supportive of any real trade agreements with Asia and Europe, but she came back with a statement where she said, quote, we have farmers here in Iowa who are hurting and they are hurting because of Donald Trump's initiated trade wars. Are are Iowans going to see that as hypocritical? Oh, I don't know. I don't I don't see that as a problem. However, I, I do because I don't I don't see that much that that much conflict. Besides which, I believe she supported the new NAFTA, the USMCA. Bernie did. Yes, she did. And so and Bernie didn't. Yep. she said, hey, th- this, enough changes have been made that I can support this right along with the AFL-CIO. Um, and 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 Bernie is like, no, hell no. Um, there are plenty of other unions and environmentalists who, who, who don't like the deal. So he might acknowledge it's better than the old one, but he would say um, neither one is good enough for me. Um, but there, there, there's a difference uh, in that. Now, with regard to the farmers in Iowa, it, that's not particularly a NAFTA-USMCA thing. That's much more a China fight deal. And uh, the 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 agreement, the phase one agreement uh, around which <laughs> the president entertained the, the country for an hour and 15 minutes, every introducing everybody in the room uh, to there and his own embarrassment, although he didn't realize it, um, is is a very, very modest first step. There are enormous numbers of bankrupt farmers in the heartland uh, whose bankruptcy was caused by the fight that the president chose to pick um, with with the Chinese. Um, but I say enormous numbers. You have hundreds of farmers with thousands of acres. Somebody else buys them and f- with deep enough pockets to find their way and uh, to new purchases which are supposed to occur um and the the farmers who survived this challenging period either with good fortune or with the federal subsidies may someday say that was in our interest um people in the know and lots of people who 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 buy other product that were caught up in these uh, tariff fights that the president chose to pick may never recover um it's a it's very much a mixed bag and depends in terms of farmers and farm communities how they happen to come how they happened to come out of this the rhetoric yeah. about what a great a spectacular wonderful unprecedented deal this is is garbage. Dan Lipner, do you agree? Um, the trade deals in general, um, uh, yeah, it's it, it. The the proof is still to be in the it, the come out. Um, the though I believe that the the Chinese deal, we still don't know any uh, facts at all. 
other than something has supposedly been signed, but we don't know what the details are, and the the American farmers that are losing out are losing out. Um, as far as the who's going to replace them, um, the it's not as though one small farmer is being replaced by other small farmers. Small farmers being replaced by mega agribusiness. Um, there's a strong argument to be made that that might be more efficient. But the narrative of the family farm suddenly becomes a lot more politically unpalatable palatable, uh, for politicians who want to run on those kind of things. Um, but that narrative has been playing out for 40 years. It's been playing, it's been playing out for 40 years, but w- with fewer and fewer actual family farms, um, it, it, it becomes a more and more difficult narrative. And for Donald Trump to shout from the mountaintops that anything that he's gotten kind of any kind of uh, success for American agriculture um, is going to be challenging for th- three years of bad for a projection of something good in the future, which we still don't know the details of. Uh, right. I think the the biggest takeaway from the the NAFTA change for farmers was American dairy farmers, and even then, I don't think they got much from the deal. Um, yeah, but somebody but else can th- correct me on that. Right, Rich Rubino. Though, let's move a little bit towards uh, the the kind of the six man in the ring that night, and that's Tom yeah. Steyer. Yeah. Did did Tom Steyer's bet of focusing on Iowa and putting now, at some estimates, fifty over fifty million dollars worth of TV ads on uh in play did his bet pay off is it paying off not so well yes it is but not so much in iowa as much as places like south carolina and nevada you know in south carolina there was one poll where he's now second in south carolina it shows the power of political advertisements i guess to a certain to a certain respect i mean he's certainly not the most charismatic candidate and certainly i don't think i i think if you challenged any democratic voter to think of one thing that he had said during that debate my guess is he would probably, they would probably not think of it. He kind of fades into the woodwork in many respects. But you see him on television, and obviously when you have a thirty-second ad, you can control, you can control, you can control the message. And yeah, I think absolutely he's putting his money into the right places. And obviously, if he has the money to spend it, specifically in a place like South Carolina, then yeah, he might as well go for it. But I don't see, I cannot envision a scenario where he acts. That being said, where he actually can be a major player and where he can get kind of, you know, Fred Harris ran in 76. He's kind of, after finishing fourth place, and I always said I winnowed myself in because he was supposed to finish a lot, a lot, further, a lot further down in the pack. I can't just see a scenario where he actually comes in the top four in Iowa New Hampshire. And even if he somehow were to do that, I can't see any form of a scenario where he wins on Super Tuesday or anything to that effect. But certainly in terms of keeping his name out there, whatever his ultimate uh, goal is, he's doing very well at that. Right. Alan Moore, I want to talk a little bit about the New York Times endorsement that happened earlier this week. Um, the New York Times editorial board, in a, in a rare televised version of their initial endorsement, the editorial board came back with an endorsement for both Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar. Uh, is what is the message that the New York Times is trying to put out there? And does that just become confusing or was this a dumb move on the editorial board? I don't know if it's a dumb move. It's certainly got a lot more attention than if they had just picked one um, and uh, and they don't mind uh, having some attention. There was an interesting logic to it. We're very early in the process. Um, So, uh, and they were torn, but, 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 uh, 
you know, this field has winnowed itself down. They took a look and and they lay out their reasons uh, for what's going on in the Democratic Party and how the Democratic Party is going to have to choose. Are we going to go in the progressive direction or in the moderate direction? And if they want to go in the progressive direction, then the, the, the Times says, that's totally legit. Here's your candidate, Elizabeth Warren. If they want to go in the in the more moderate, a centrist direction, totally legit reasons for that. Your candidate should be Amy Klobuchar. And then their closing line was, may the best woman win. Um, right. It was it was different. It was interesting. I don't think uh, Iowa was waiting to hear what the New York Times had to say, or that, for that matter, that South Carolina is was thinking, "Oh, now we know what to, how to move forward," um, or even New Hampshire, where where at least that's the local paper for uh, a, a lot of people. I'm not saying it's irrelevant what they do, and the fact that they went that way made it kind of more interesting. Well, um, but but right, uh, and bitter, right. you know. <laughs> If you couldn't even make the top two, if you were one of the others, then you felt pretty badly. So uh, I, I would like to Dan, Dan share one, one yep. little anecdote. So 12 years ago when I was in Iowa for Joe Biden, uh, one of the national uh, team from the Biden campaign, uh, the press team, sent one of my field staff to the uh, local bodega or uh, gas station to try and get a copy of the New York Times Um and they came back with a couple newspapers, all of which were local, if not super local, Iowa papers. And at which point the that the national press uh, staffer was like, wait, you mean they don't read the New York Times here? No. <laughs> um, uh, so, but, but then, I mean, then, yeah, then, uh, then that is the understatement of understatement to say that Iowa voters were not waiting for the New York Times endorsement. <laughs> but does the New York Times endorsement just further confuse possible supporters in the Democratic Party or independent voters that might be looking for some sort of good direction to take their vote? No. Right. I mean, endorsements are endorsements, and endorsements don't always win the day for whoever whoever wins the race. Yeah, it's good for a little bit of uh, a little bit of a boost. It also uh, helps to get get a, a little more positive press out there. And odds are, the editorial page is going to be continue to be your friend for right. the remainder of the race. But right. voters don't wait for that stuff. I mean, the folks that are on the fence. Right. Are there, but right there, it's it's not the end all be all of anything. Richard Bino, thirty seconds. Yeah, what it does is it gives a lot of free media attention, specifically to Amy Klobuchar. Now people are saying, who is this candidate? And it actually, you know, John Edwards in two thousand and eight got the endorsement of the Des Moines Register. Pat Buchanan got the endorsement of the New Hampshire Union Leader. Those were, I mean, those were endorsements. The Manchester Union Leader. Those were endorsements that actually mattered because it got their it got their name out there and it showed that they're essentially legitimate candidates. They're not backbenchers. And in both of those cases, in the case of Amy Klobuchar, it shows her formidability and it shows that she's um, it shows that she's a legitimate candidate. In terms of Elizabeth Warren. I don't know how I don't know how they necessarily benefits other than the fact that Donald Trump can say that she's part of the New York Times, the elitist New York Times right. endorsed her. Right. And by the way, Alan failing Moore, New York uh, Times. Right. And by the way, yes, Alan, yes. Alan Moore, the Manchester Union leader, might take umbrage with you calling the New York Times a local paper. Just saying. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, 
We've got a stable genius in the White House. We're going to talk about the book of the same name when we come back. This is Backroom Politics. Stay with us. Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. And we are back here in our split screen edition of the best political podcast you've never downloaded. Uh, Dan Lipner, Alan Moore, Rich Rubino. We've got Rob the Engineer in the Engineering Center. And of course, special shout out to uh, Oscar and Charlie are hosts here at Podcast Village. Hey, uh, there's a book that came out this week uh, that was uh, authored by two really great Washington uh, Washington Post reporters, Philip Rucker and Carol, Carol Lenning. Uh, it's called The Very Stable Genius. It's a really detailed uh, view of the reality inside the Oval Office and the White House and how this administration's kind of trudged through the past three years. Uh, Alan Moore, I I know that we've all been reading excerpts and, and, and seeing the takeaways from this. What's the biggest takeaway from the book that shocked you so far? Um, Okay, I think the book is not out until the next couple of days, but there have been various excerpts and stories, particularly right, right. particularly in the Post, because these two writers write for the Post, and, and, and they're serious writers who were uh, parts of uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning teams, um, right. uh, actually on the Russia-President-Trump uh, uh, connection. Um, so I read it, and I... And I'm sad that nothing really surprises me other than how uncomfortable the detail is. So you hear things that you kind of know are going on that reflect this president's ignorance, lack of focus, arrogance, 
and just fundamental stupidity and and ugliness. So there was a, a, a lead story in the Sunday Post on the front page, a long story of a of a major meeting in the Pentagon uh, a few months after the president was here that was set up by the secretary of state, the defense secretary, Jim Mattis. So Rex Tillerson was still, was still there at state. Um, uh, Jim Mattis, a host of generals. Um, I think White House chief of staff was there. Um, Steve Bannon was still on board because he was in the room. And these guys got it in their mind that having been in numerous meetings and realized how little the president knew about U.S., U.S. history, U.S. geopolitical alliances like NATO, geography, uh, logic behind foreign assistance and foreign involvement right, and, right, and so on, that right. they were going to do a tutorial for the president. And what they did not do, and, and they and they started in, and people who were in the room realized that very early on the president was 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 showing physical discomfort, looking away, not paying attention, and then started weighing in at times, said stupid, ugly things, including some some very ugly comments to the military. Uh, brass that were in the room like you guys are dopes you're losers crazy stuff um prompting rex tillerson of all people according to these reports to stand up not jim mattis you know who had his own relationship with president and the way of dealing with it and i think had a stronger relationship with the president tillerson finally reached a breaking point he just said mr president that's not true and at, at a later point, and, and of course, that's not what this president likes to hear privately, much much less in a room with 20 or so people present. And then later stood up at one point after the president called them losers and dopes, said, I want you to know my father, uh, my, fa- my grandfather and my father were veterans, and I respect everything you do. It was another direct confrontational uh, uh uh, dispute with the president, right. and and Tillerson right. didn't last that much longer. Supposedly, walking out of that meeting in a small group was when Tillerson famously said, "That guy's an effing moron." Right. And then that that came out later. Already, the president was furious um, with with Tillerson, and then that report right. came out, and it was just a, a, you know a countdown. What right. I do, what I do not understand, is how the likes of Steve Bannon, and and I think Wright's Previs was still chief of staff, how they, knowing how this president operated already, would have allowed a meeting like that of multiple hours to occur. Um, right. They knew how to talk to him. They knew what not to do, and 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 they should have known. And I'm not blaming them, right, but right. they 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 didn't avoid all the damage that they might have been able to put off had they given right. better guidance up front. Right. It's Richard crazy Bino, and sad, right. but still disturbing. Right. Richard, is the Richard Bino, where he left off. <laughs> yeah. Well, Richard Bino, you know, we we've seen books like this come out, and and in particular books like this about trump i mean obviously notably the book shattered by our good friend john allen and his co-author amy parnes about the lead-up to the president's administration but this one what strikes me about this one 
is that there were people that were sources, according to uh, Phil Rucker and in, in a couple of interviews that I've seen with him, that that normally would not be talking to media, let alone reporters writing a book about this administration, that actually did talk to him and were sourcing on this book. Is this a sign that we could see a little bit of the tight-knit center of the administration starting to unravel, or is this a footprint of president being a... Uh, a single-handed executive, not listening to everybody and just making his own decisions on his own time. Yeah, it's interesting. It's kind of the opposite. When Eisenhower was president, the argument, a lot of people thought that he essentially left everything to his staff and he was, they call him a duffer. He was always supposedly out golfing, but later they found out he had an invisible hand in his presidency. He was ordering things, he was ordering people to do things. He just wasn't necessarily publicizing it. In Donald Trump's case, I think that he does see himself as kind of an autocrat. I think that's why he has such jealousy for someone like Kim Jong-un, for example, um, or just for generally autocrats, autocrats around the world. And I think that he does not understand necessarily why he has to be actually accountable to these people. I think he would much rather just make his decisions um, essentially by himself. But I do think that, you know, I guess this is an argument. Everyone says you want somebody who's, you know, it's always an argument with someone's untainted by Washington, like Jimmy Carter said, or somebody who is a non-politician, and being a non-politician is actually seen as an, an asset or beneficial in the American political process, um, it actually, you can actually make the argument, this is why perhaps you need somebody who's kind of boring, who's somebody who's an institutionalist, somebody who's an establishment person, who's actually been in the Senate, who's been, who's been a governor, who actually knows how this all works. I don't think he necessarily has the intellectual curiosity. I know that From what I've heard, a lot of people that have advised him in terms of his intelligence briefs, they try to put economic um, numbers into everything involving foreign policy because that's what he understands. He's got kind of a one-track mind when it comes to tariffs, when it comes to how it's affecting the economy, when it comes to how it's affecting profits. Then you get to the business part of his mind, but he doesn't necessarily – he's not like someone that Bill Clinton like, like, you know, liked to study the weeds of policies, kind of likes to study the nuances of it. He just sees it essentially as, you know, how is this going to benefit somebody economically and how is this necessarily going to benefit uh, me politically? But I, I don't know if anyone's right. necessarily going to come out publicly because when you do that, there's a reason why he has unanimous, unanimous support in the House of Representatives against his impeachment because if anyone comes out like Justin Amash did, for example, and criticizes him, they know they're going to get a tweet storm and they know, they know potentially that he can actually he can actually ruin right. their lives and he right. knows where the bodies are buried and there's a lot of fear there right dan lipner so i i i i need to sort of disagree so i i, I don't necessarily think the trump is an either or for the insider outside of washington the lack of knowledge does not require you to be a washington institutionalist or even a career politician. It just requires you to be intellectually engaged, and it's not clear to me based on, on, on the trade fights and some of the other things that have been done that he even understands the economic issues. He understands money that goes into his pocket. That, that he clearly understands. But beyond that, it's not clear there's any kind of depth whatsoever ever in his understanding of anything. I mean, one of the other items that came out of the book, and me and Alan were talking about this off air, I cannot imagine what it's like being in the meeting with 
Trump and Modi as a Trump staffer. M- Modi, the head of the, the, the president, pre- the pres- of, president of, India. of India. When the president looks to Modi and says, it's not like you share a border with China. To be, <laughs> to, to be that disengaged and that not just kind of wrong. It's not like, you know, you, you suddenly have, you know, something that just has a little portion touching on it. The Chinese-Indian border is not exactly a casual thing, especially to China and India. So <laughs> the the idea that this president had that kind of meeting and made that kind of colossal mistake is unfathomable. And that's the stuff, we again, we know about. What are the things that are actually colorable that he's getting wrong? I mean, there is some nuance out there. And when the president gets things wrong, like he apparently got wrong about the Iranian missile attack against the United States in response to the the assassination of the Iranian general— no Americans were hurt, except for the Americans that were hurt that were flown out to to Germany. I mean, where are the lies and when is the well, where's yeah, the nonsense? Let's acknowledge on that one, he undoubtedly got bad information. It took a while for that to filter out. But I mean, the question he, is, how do we know? Well, in that case, that's just, a, I mean, there are plenty of examples. That's just not a particularly good one because he, he, he was poorly served in that case. Well, and I, it took yeah. a while for those injuries to, to emerge. But... But uh, that's not to, to take issue at all. I wish he was a with, drinker. Then we with, could at least blame him for being with, with overly the served. Point, <laughs> and, the, and the problem with somebody like the meeting with Modi is that Modi walks out of the room and says to some of his own people, then this gets back into the authors of the book, this man is not a serious person. He's not a leader we can deal with. We need to be very, very careful how much priority we put on our relationship with uh, with the U.S. and by all rights— began to think more about the relationship with that with that country with which he doesn't have much of a border, China, and thinks, oh gosh, maybe if the U.S. is acting strange and ignorant um, and uninformed, then China has got to be the direction we look at and, and we can't right, count on the U.S. Right. like we so, wanted so to Rubino, and would hope to have. Right. So Rich Rubino, you know, when we see books like this come out, uh, it's obvious that this is an election year. This book is coming out in the first month of said election year cycle. Do, do these type of books help sway American voters as far as where they might place their votes? Or is this just more printed fodder for the inside the beltway crowd? Probably in the latter, because there are so few, the elusive, persuadable voters. I mean, Donald Trump, he's not somebody, you know, this isn't Gerald Ford or some, or, or somebody that people are kind of like iffy about, you know, one way or the other. And there are a lot of potential persuadable voters. There are very few people who like Donald Trump will just say that this is some sort of, you know, these are a bunch of Washington elitists who don't like him. People that, people that like him rather would say that people that don't like Donald Trump would say, oh, this just reinforces why I don't like him. So I don't really see how this necessarily – I don't think there's anything that – in this election, it's going to be a base, base, base turnout election. I don't think there's anybody that's – I don't think there's any way that you can really persuade, you know, those few independent voters to go one way or the other based on a book. I mean, now that being said, there are a lot of people – 
who are probably not going to tell you that they're voting for Donald Trump, Donald Trump, but they see their 401k and they're saying, you know what, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump secretly. Maybe some of these people will be dissuaded from voting for Donald Trump. But I mean, the numbers are so de minimis on this. People know whether they like Donald Trump or not. He's very, he's very, he's, He's the most polarizing president in terms of Republicans, you know, with 89% liking him, Democrats 90% don't, numbers 90% not liking him. People know whether they like Donald Trump or not. Alan Moore, do you agree? Well, it, it seems to me with regard to a book like this, it's not that, that uh, the masses are going to buy the book. Um, they, they're not. But, but, but thought leaders, so-called editorial writers, commentators, if they don't read the book, will become aware of the book. And I'm thinking about even some of the Fox News folks who will look at a book like that and think a little bit the way the way Ann Coulter went through her evolution, start and, and every now and then Tucker Carlson will will admit to being troubled by something. I've not heard that from Sean Hannity. Um, but but there are folks out there that that have perhaps been defenders of Trump and they look at that and they say, that's scary. That's, as, as Dan said earlier, that's disturbing. Is, is America at risk because our leader is so undisciplined and so immodest, has such a lack of humility that he can't acknowledge that he doesn't know something or that he got something wrong and wants to fix it? And is that really the kind of leadership that any major nation, or minor one for that matter, but particularly a major nation, wants to 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 be leading it during these times? I'm not naive here, thinking, oh wow, that 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 book is gonna is gonna go like wildfire through the talking heads at Fox News, and people are gonna say. You're scaring us, Mr. President. But right. these things are incremental. They, they 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 creep in. People hear stuff. They read right. stuff. Some of these people know each other, and they say, "You need to look at this chapter of this book. You need to read that book." And they they look at it, and then they 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 read about some of these meetings, and they think, "Wow, that is that's concerning." Not necessarily, let's go get the guy, and let's go find him guilty in the impeachment trial, but this should matter in November. But Dan Lipner, I mean, is it enough for it to matter in November? Well, so amongst Republican voters, the answer is no. Um, with I will only say the one caveat, uh, since all sorts of Republican primaries have been canceled, I don't actually know when the first Republican primary, contested Republican primary is on the ballot. Uh, Rich, uh, I'm looking to you since you are the, the, the wasteland of weird bits of information. All so you I know, might know. Is they've canceled a bunch of them, including South Carolina, where the then-candidate uh, Mark Sanford, the former governor, was a candidate there, but there are... You know, Bill Weld is certainly campaigning um, vociferously in New Hampshire, so they are going to have a New Hampshire primary, um, and he's trying to get, you know, I guess 15 percent. So, but the the, the ever-shrinking uh, number of Republicans that are now shifting to independent, that's where, uh, while it's not a huge number, those folks are independents for reasons, and I'm going to guess most of the folks who have been chased away from the Republican parties because they're appalled by Donald Trump. Um, and people who claim to be independent actually get uh, listened to a bit more by their neighbors. 
Um, so there, there could be something there that that uh, is not going to do the president any favors. I'm quite certain uh, he'll t- start talking about the some of those items in his rallies, and will look even more moronic mm-hmm. uh, toward uh, those particular items in his rallies. But right. nonetheless, um, it, it, it's to be seen how that ends up in, in the fall. And those Saturday Night Live sketches that George Herbert Walker Bush hated uh, during his re-election, um, it's no longer a mystery for Donald Trump. So how the pop culture narrative plays out um, is, is, is going to be different. It's not going to be like Ronald Reagan, who was kind of lovable in the morning in America, uh, even though some of those critiques that were in the pop culture item for Reagan were still true. Reagan was likable. Uh, That is not necessarily true of Donald Trump. And so people on the edge and the question that he posed to the to the Hillary Clinton voters or the people who leaned Hillary Clinton, which, which is what he got to lose now there are things to point to, uh, right. which is not going to help the president out for re-election. I'm not naive enough to say he can't win re-election, uh, since I was naive enough to believe he couldn't win at all. Uh, so it's to be seen, but I none of it's going to help him. Uh, so we've got a couple of minutes left here uh, in the in the show, and Virginia, our backyard, kind of took center stage in uh in two aspects one of them was a large gun rally that was held uh in the grounds of the virginia commonwealth capital where there was a anti and pro-gun rights uh marches that were occurring simultaneously uh number one does did did that do anything to persuade gun rights advocates one side or the other to really reinforce their stance or did was this just a bunch of noise alan moore um you were out there weren't you alan you you had your 50 caliber sniper rifle Uh, you know i'll tell you what i'll tell you what let me go to dan lipner first while you're thinking your way through your 50 caliber sniper (laughs) rifle and by the way no, no, no. Joke about the video I posted. No, 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 no. I was, I was, I was reviewing that the actual that 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 impeachment related vote. But with regard to with regard to to Virginia, to two big things as you said this this gun rally, which fortunately the 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 governor uh, and the, the the legislature had the foresight to say no guns in the Capitol. Right. Um, right. Unless you're a member who gets to walk around <laughs> the. <laughs> the the metal detectors and you're packing and you're kind of not affected, which is very bizarre. I don't know that right. any, what what's happened there. And then the governor said no guns on the grounds during this this uh, uh, demonstration on Monday. So they erected special fences that, right, right. that you had to pass through. Um, and then you got uh, hundreds, maybe a thousand, maybe a thousand or more people. Carrying their AK-47s and their sidearms, right. wandering around, uh, furious that that a the, guy the, was carrying a 50 caliber sniper, sniper rifle. rifle. <laughs> that, yeah, that, that, like, how is that legal? Um, but I guess as long as it's not an automatic, um, the the uh, uh, the whole the, the whole issue is whether this the, the legislature is on the verge of some 
rather modest, but right. nonetheless controversial right. if for the Second yeah. Amendment uh, right. uh, true believers. But right. this all came on the heels last right. week of Virginia don't, being the 38th. Let me. Okay. Yeah, the, 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 most, the, the most meaningful thing I saw taken away was what was, was it was a meme that showed one of the a, a sketch of one of these morons carrying a way too large gun in public. And since some of these guys were looked like they were dressed for battle um, uh, on top of everything right. else. Oh, they're, uh, they're phony camo outfits. They, right. Yeah, they're, they're phony yeah. camo. W- w- was no, a, no, a, a store clerk like simply space... re- responding, uh, wouldn't you like some Viagra instead? It's, it's like the Space Force camo. But the other big news coming out of Virginia is uh, this, the, the Virginia Assembly finally ratified the Equal Rights Amendment. Is it too little too late or is this a big deal? Let me well, start with it, you, Dan Lipman. No, go ahead. You go ahead. Uh, so Dan I'm Lippner. not actually certain on the constitutional uh, rules on this. Um, I know there has been some, some conversations in the past uh, since uh, the last amendment that was that got ratified was actually the retroactive pay raise, which floated out there forever and got ratified after a hundred some odd years of waiting on the waiting uh, for uh, state legislatures to ratify. Um, and I don't actually know what the takeaway is going to be on this. Uh, it's, Alan Moore? Yeah, you know, it's, it's <laughs> for, for constitutional nerds, um, it's kind of interesting. The, the, the ERA passed in, in the early 80s in the Congress with two, it needed three quarters or two thirds votes. And then it needs three quarters of the states. And, and all that they got, oh, up to a few short by the, by 19, uh, 89, which was the date set, and then and then the Congress, uh, with with some controversy, extended the date to 1992, and that was a whole gee, we're moving the goalposts. Since since 1992, five states have said we've changed our mind, we're not ratifying anymore. It's not clear you can do that, and now we've got the right. 38th state. So it's a legal question, but I would say it's not a powerful case for. Wow. Making saying the ERA is now uh, the the, uh, the, law the, the, the the law of the land, right. Right. and I, Which, it's hard to believe it will happen. But it's still curious and not insignificant from a an equal rights view. Right, right. Yeah. Symbolically, Rubino, symbolically, Rubino, it's one, important. Rich Rubino, one minute. Go ahead. Yeah, no. Just that back in 1976, you had essentially both President Carter or the future President Carter and President Ford supporting it. You had Betty Ford, um, you know, go, trying, to lobby, trying to lobby members of Congress and state legislators, and you had Jimmy Carter literally calling up individual members of, you know, state representatives, state senators, trying to get it to pass, and it did not pass. And, you know, at the time, though, you also had, you know, um, certainly the Eagle Forum and um, Phyllis Lafley and others who were opposed to it. I think it kind of, kind of went by the wayside since then, and all of a sudden it's kind of come back. I don't know if there would necessarily now be a state that would vote actually in opposition to it, but it's certainly not an issue that's on the front burner of most Americans' minds today. Well, five states have changed their mind. Five right. states who ratified later, uh, their legislature it's said, We're, we, wanna, we, <laughs> we changed our mind about it. It's not clear you can do that. Right. Um, but anyway, that yeah. being said, we're going to keep an eye on that. But we have, uh, real quickly, a special announcement. Aaron Harbaugh, who has recently joined us, just, I believe, had a baby girl this week. 
Uh, we want to wish all the best to Erin and her family, her, her new her new addition to the family. Uh, hope you can join us again soon. But on behalf of Alan Moore, Dan Lipner, Richard Bino, and uh, uh, wow, Rob the Engineer out there, thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Oscar, our host there at Podcast Village. Also, special shout out to Fred and the team here at Maduro Cigar Lounge, 2800 Marina Bay Drive in League City, Texas. Uh, for giving us an impromptu studio to work out of here while I'm here. And uh, we also want to say you can follow us on Twitter, on Facebook. You can also check out our website, backroompolitics.org. And you can download us as a podcast, Google, Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio. Pick one. We're kind of a big deal now. Have a great week, America. See ya. See ya.